Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Welcome back to the show. This is a podcast in which we help you navigate faith in the modern world. And so let's talk about navigating change. Change is uh, the only thing that's constant in life, that things are always changing. But one of the things about this podcast is uh, it has felt the same, sounded the same, looked the same uh, for years. Uh, podcast started in 2013. That is a long, long time ago. 2013 uh, seems like forever ago, but basically on a whim, I thought, let's just try to do a podcast. And back in those dark ages, not everyone and their sister had a podcast. And so it's kind of weird to get going. We had to kind of cajole a few guests into uh, doing a podcast, which they had never done before. Uh, multiple friends have since gone on to create their own podcast or uh, become people that a lot of people know, but in the beginning, they didn't even know what a podcast was. And uh, it has been very exciting to be a part of this whole journey. But as all things do change, it's time for a little bit of a change on the podcast. So next week, when you download the next episode, uh, next Monday morning, which would be August 2nd. Things are going to be a little different. Wait, is that August 2nd? Yeah, that's August 2nd. Um, it's going to look the, look, probably look a little different. Uh, the image you see on your phone when you download it, uh, the sound that will welcome you to the podcast might be just a little bit different and uh, it's going to be a little change. Uh, because think about change is that it is the only constant thing in the world and the, and the more things don't change, the more things probably not living and growing. So we're going to continue having the great newsworthy content, but it's going to look, sound, feel maybe a little bit different because ultimately uh, you probably have changed, but I definitely have changed. And the things that I find myself extremely passionate about are are different now than especially when I first started the podcast. When I first started the podcast, a lot of what I was trying to to do with the podcast wasn't, you know, to create a platform really for others to to promote their work or for for to introduce you to people, but more it was a like a real personal thing for me that it was me trying to make sense of a faith that was not really working that well. And I was at a point where things were kind of stuck. And to get a podcast, to get a microphone uh, was a great excuse to get some of these people who were helping helping me try to navigate a faith that wasn't working. And so the interviews were a lot of con- conversations about how to understand scripture, how to understand doubt, how to, how to deal with suffering. These are all central issues to me, especially uh, in those years, because I, I didn't have an answer. I didn't understand how scripture could work. I didn't understand you know, suffering in a way that helped me manage my own adversity. It, a lot of these things were me just trying to grasp for answers myself. And honestly, I, that's not where I am right now. Like, suffering is always going to be there. Uh, inconsistencies, uh, ideological things that just don't line up, they're always going to be there. Scripture is always going to be problematic in that it doesn't live up to my modern expectations for what I think um, a, a, a spiritual text, a sacred text should be. Like These are all things that I've now learned just to, to make peace with them. And, and I think part of the reason that I, I'm at the point where I am now is that I had this community that supported me and the questioning and the processing that I was going through. And that community includes the guests who've come on the podcast, who shared their work with us, but also with y'all. Many of you have been with me on this ride for a long time. And some of you are new to this, and 
super happy about that. Uh, but some of you have been here for a long time, and I've developed some great relationships with people who uh, who, who will send emails, who will send comments, who will engage with uh, the podcast. And it, it has been very meaningful to me because sometimes when you're trying to process these things, if you don't have a group of people that support you, um, you, you end up on an island and you, you end up alone. And uh, sometimes churches and religious communities can be that because when when you question what's important to me all of a sudden that makes me question what's important to me and I don't want to do that it's it's kind of like um bitcoin uh yeah that's that's what we're going to go for the next minute uh let's talk about bitcoin and if you don't know bitcoin it is a cryptocurrency you know many people would say like Bitcoin and cryptocurrency are like the new gold, specifically Bitcoin, because there's only a certain amount of it. Eventually, it will run out. And so uh, standard currencies, you know, they're going to be devalued over time because you can keep printing more and more and more. But if you have cryptocurrency, it's like gold uh, in that there's a limited amount of it. And so it will not devalue in price. So, you know, whether that's true or false, I don't I don't know. That's not really my world. But what I do know is as I've started to kind of look into this a little bit more, is that there is this online community that supports cryptocurrency. And what you find over and over again is that you have these crypto fans that are always saying how great it is. They're always espousing like, hey, you can trust in Bitcoin. The future is Bitcoin. Invest in this, invest in this, invest in this. And what I feel like, and this is just like my amateur analysis, is what's happening is that you have these people who are saying, y'all need to understand how important this is because these people own these cryptocurrencies. And these cryptocurrencies' value is contingent upon everyone else thinking that it's valuable. That literally, their prices go up the more people believe in them. And so when others doubt the future being crypto or the future having Bitcoin in it or uh, the prevalency of Bitcoin in day-to-day interactions, what's, what's happening is their own personal investment is devalued if other people are questioning its value. And to me, as a person who lives in this, uh, the world of spirituality and Christianity— it's very reminiscent of what church is. Because if my personal investment in faith is surrounded by other people questioning their investment in faith, what it's going to do, it's going to devalue my own investment in my life in this trajectory. And so some people don't have the ability to question because they function in a community that's like the Bitcoin community, that we all need to not doubt its truthfulness, its value, its significance. But others have found healthy communities that enable them to have questions, to entertain different ideas, to, to process things out loud. And what I think ultimately happens is y- you work through these and then you can come to peace and find life in a faith that isn't fragile, that's not afraid of questioning. And that's why I think having a community to help you is so important. So when I started this podcast in 2013, this was a central issue to me that I didn't I didn't have an answer for these things, which is kind of problematic since my job was to, in a lot of ways, uh, lead a spiritual community to have answers for these things. And so now like that's not like the the front and center question for me. And uh, that's how the podcast has changed. I still get the books that come across my desk of people who've written um, uh, written works that have tried to like, you know, help us deal with these questions. And uh, I have some good books that, have, that are literally right next to me uh, on my shelf right now. But I'm you know, I, I don't do those books as much. I still obviously talk about some of those things, but it's just not where I am right now. And uh, I think that's a lot of, in a lot of ways, because I've had opportunities to explore and to process and question these things. And that's changed. Like, I think that's a a good change because that's just a different uh, season of my life. And I'm grateful that I had the opportunity to, to flesh out a lot of that stuff in my first book, God Over Good. And 
in a lot of ways, that was able, uh, that was a way for me to say, this, this is where I am. This is what I've learned. This is what I've grown through. And the podcast has been a, a central part of that. And I think you have, uh, you have some people that don't have the ability to change because they never actually address the real questions or the real issue. Like it, if, if you're a person who's a church person who's ever been to a, uh, a Sunday morning Bible class or maybe a small group, you, you probably know that there are certain people that no matter what the subject matter is for that day's discussion, they're going to talk about whatever one or two like pet issues that they always go back to. Like you, you could be talking about uh, you know, the importance of Jewish dietary laws. And somehow they're going to get to the issue about, oh, this is what's wrong with Catholics, right? Like somehow it's always going to go to that one issue. Or, you know, this is why we should think X, Y, or Z, or this is my political angle that I'm going to somehow bring up in every conversation, even if it's talking about, you know, soteriology or whatever. Because often we have these pet issues that we keep going back to, and they never seem like they get resolved because they're not really the actual issue, and so we talk about these pet issues, we keep going to them because there's a deeper issue under the surface that we really haven't, able, uh, haven't been able to unearth and address. And so, yeah, yeah, I'll talk about what's wrong with that group of people over there that probably doesn't have a huge impact on my day-to-day life because what I don't want to talk about is this broken relationship I have with my daughter and my inability to get my kids to live a life that I think is virtuous and honorable and fruitful. And so what I can do is I can yell at those people over there but I don't want to deal with my problem that's right here. And so I think that's, that's what we find sometimes when people can't change is because they can't actually address what's underneath the surface. And maybe that's why probably my second book was talking about that stuff. Uh, the book I wrote um, came out a little over a year ago, uh, Befriending Your Monsters, was a book really about trying to move past the shallow surface stuff to deal with what's underneath and at the, the root of it. Because ultimately for us to be the people that God created us to be, all its fullness, it often requires us to go where we don't want to go, to go to places that we're scared and that we're afraid to go to. Uh, you, you probably heard me uh, talking on the podcast um, about my newfound love for uh, martial arts, specifically jujitsu. Uh, as a high school wrestler, I, I, I really loved um, that form of, of, of sport, and uh, jujitsu has been the closest supplement to that, and I've really fallen in love with it over the last year and a half. And uh, last uh, last weekend, I uh, I went to my first jujitsu competition and competed. And so uh, I initially was talking to my daughters about this. Hey, I, yeah, I'm gonna do a competition, and they're super supportive of my jujitsu stuff. Avery asked me, and like always compares it to cheerleading, which is pretty amazing. Um, so at first, I think one of them uh, referred to it as uh, my jujitsu showcase, um, which is what you call cheer stuff. But anyway, uh, nevertheless. But so I'm telling about this, and she goes. I, would I want to come to this dad? No, I don't want to watch old guys roll around on the ground, but nevertheless, they still did come. And, um, the craziest thing I I posted this on Instagram is that I haven't been as nervous as I was about this competition in, with anything in, in years, like interviews, uh, speaking gigs, like nothing. I, even when I first started at my new church, uh, like I was like anxious for the first couple sermons just because, you know, you want to make a good first impression. But the level of nerves I had to like get in front of this, this arena of people and compete against some stranger um, was, uh, was nerve wracking. But there's a sense that um, for me to be who I'm created to be, I've got to go where I don't want to go. And in that moment, as I'm driving to the Round Rock, Round Rock Athletic Center, like I really just didn't want to go. 
But I realized on the other side of it, like there's this level of like, man, I, I did something I was afraid of and I feel so much better on the other side of it. It, it wasn't because like I performed exactly how I want to, but because I was able to go where I didn't want to go. And I dealt with those nerves and those anxieties. And honestly, I, I think the book has helped me a lot because it's hard to uh, run away from things you're afraid of when you have a book saying go towards what you're afraid of. And uh, so that's a nice little bit of uh, accountability. So uh, yeah, that book, Befriending Your Monsters, which, uh, which by the way, let me, let me make a plug for that uh, since we're already talking about it, friends. Uh, next week, a, w- a week from now, on August 2nd through August 9th, uh, Amazon and I, th- I think a few other places are going to be running a uh, promotion where you can get the e-version of that book for $1.99. So two bucks, you can get a copy of the book. And let me be honest, the book came out at the beginning of the pandemic. And if I had to do it all over again, I definitely would not release a book during a pandemic. Probably not the best idea for anyone. And so uh, it would be a huge help to me <laughs> if you guys could go, uh, even if you already have a copy of it, just just go download the e-version, uh, drop $1.99, and uh, you, you'll support the podcast, you, you'll support the work. And uh, it really helps me writing the next book if uh, if you guys go get a copy of this. So on August 2nd, that discount is going to be running $1.99. And here's what I'm going to do. Um, starting next week when the promotion starts, if you uh, if you download the e version, but you actually want a hard copy, um, what I'll do is this: I've got uh, I've got a stack of books that I'm going to give away. And so if you buy the e version and you post about it online and you tag me in it, uh, tag me in Instagram, uh, and I see it, uh, what I'll do is uh, is I will actually send you a signed copy. I, I've got a stack of them. As long as the books last, I'll keep sending them. So if you want an actual paperback copy of the book, um, buy the e version, post a picture of it, and tag me in it, and I will uh, I will send you actually a signed copy. So obviously that's as what do they say uh, as supplies last. Um, so that's not for everyone, but I probably have twenty or so. And uh, I'm working on one other special little promotion to go with that. That I'm um, I'll, I'll tell you back next week if I can get it all lined up. But uh, that's next week. Get a copy of the e version of the book, or just just go buy a copy of the book right now. It helps either way. So um, monsters, like I said, uh, podcast. It's changing. Uh, the look will be different. The sound will be different. Um, and I, I really hope you guys enjoy, but still the, the direction of the podcast is, is constant. The, the direction that this podcast is going is I'm, I'm trying to create an environment to help you navigate faith in the modern world. And so some of those questions are going to be like, how do we understand scripture? We'll still talk about that. Uh, how to understand suffering. That's obviously still going to be there, but things that you, you've probably noticed are major themes that I think are front and center. Uh, obviously the first one that I find to be extremely pressing right now is the issue of uh, the divisive powers that be. And I think the Christian witness that our world needs right now is a prophetic witness that calls us to see the image of God in all people. And I think the political powers in the system that we function in in America has created a system in which we, we don't do that anymore. And so I think as we navigate faith in the modern world, like that's a front and center issue. How do we learn to see the image of God in all people, even when there are differences, ideologically, politically, theologically, all these things um, divide us from seeing the essence and the humanity in the people in front of us. And I think the prophetic witness that the church needs to be to the world is to be a secondary way of living that creates peace where there is division. So that's one that will always be up. Um, anyway, uh, other big questions, obviously race is a big question. Uh, what, what does community look like is a big question. These are all big questions that uh, I think the podcast will continue to try to help you navigate as we go forward. Now, um, 
next week. Uh, for all of you Jesus and John Wayne fans that you've been asking uh, to have a podcast talking about that book, we have the author of that one, which I honestly uh, should have practiced how to pronounce her last name, but uh, Kristen, don't know how to say it yet. Check the podcast next week, see if I learned how to say her name. Um, but we got that one coming up next week. Uh, this week... Um, as you guys know, in July, I typically uh, slow down the interviews just so I can kind of have uh, some Sabbath. Obviously, I had a um, uh, a Sabbath that I wasn't really scheduled to take off from the podcast a while back when our beloved uh, Wild at Heart man uh, hung up on me. That kind of uh, began a uh, month and a half break. So I-, I wanted to keep putting some stuff out this July, but... Um, this was an extremely long intro, uh, but what I'm going to do is like I typically do in the summers, uh, this last uh, podcast in July, here is one that is uh, an oldie but a goodie. I just want you to have some content, especially if you're driving around in July, um, you're doing some stuff, maybe you're vacationing, maybe you're doing whatever. One, um, do you still have content that I will post uh, right now? So this is an old conversation um, that goes back to, uh, I did an Instagram, uh, ask me anything, and someone said, who is a voice that you wish that the Christian community heard more of, and uh, this is that. So I hope you enjoy this old podcast, but next week um, we'll have new sound, new stuff, and a new interview uh, talking about some good stuff. And I just want to say again, thank you all so much for the support of the podcast. Thanks for being behind this, and um, don't forget next week, get a copy of Befriending Your Monster for $1.99 on Amazon or wherever you get your books online. All right. Thanks, friends. Here we go. And without further ado, from San Antonio, Texas... I mean, he's really from Canada, but here he is, Father Ronald Rollheiser. Friends, it's uh, the return of Father Ronald Rollheiser. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you today? Good to be here. Thanks, Luke. Good? Well, I'm good. How's San... Well, hot Texas afternoon here. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's great to have another Texan on the phone. And how long yeah. have you been down in Texas now? 13 years, finishing my 13th year here at the school. 13 years, Okay. Uh, so you're fully converted to being a Texan, Mexican food, you drink salsa for breakfast. I mean, you say y'all, do you have it all down yet? Uh, I'm still working on the language, the y'all part. I still, you know, I'm a Canadian, so there's a lot of A and a boat in there. So <laughs> I got to still working on the accent. Okay. Well, when you mix a Canadian with a Texan, what happens there? Like, what, do you just become a very friendly person with boots on or like, how does that work? We become friendly with boots on, and then as our prime minister said, we're reasonable and polite. So we get the two together, you know? <laughs> and we say A a lot. Well, so how long do you think it'll take you to work out the A out of your, your vernacular? Do you think it'll stay forever? A couple more years. Okay, a couple more years. Okay. Well, I, uh, I saw on one of my friend's uh, Twitter feed that he got a copy of your new book a week ago. And I thought, oh my goodness, I didn't know you even had a new book out. So I downloaded it, read it, and I, I, one of the things that's con- like surprising to me, like I read your work and I'm so, it connects so strongly to me. I wish more people read your stuff. And so I'm, I, I don't, I, I'm surprised at how much your book connects with me, that there isn't a larger group of like the white evangelical males that read Richard Rohr. Richard Rohr I, told me that he has this massive demographic of readers that he never thought he would have of white evangelical males. How, do you find many in your, of your readers who come from a young evangelical kind of background? Surprisingly, it's a surprise to me. Too. I just gave a, a, a retreat at a place called Laity Lodge just a week and a half ago. 
and there were like 80 or 90 people, and probably um, the vast majority of them were, were white evangelicals, mm-hmm. you know. Some young, some, you know, not so young. Uh, but, you know, it's surprising to be popularity with them, as well as with um, mainline Protestants, particular Presbyterians. I'm not sure why they've picked, on, picked up on me, but they have. And, uh, and, and I'm glad because I, I really believe that uh, Jesus is pretty universal. And, you know, and, you know I, I would hope that we can, uh, that, that Christ takes it across denominational lines, you yeah. know. So I'm, 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 I'm flattered by it, mm-hmm. you know. There's a, but, I, but but also I'm happy about it, you know. Yeah, you've got a section in the book where I think you're writing to maybe a Baptist pastor friend, and yeah. you write a note and says to a fellow Christian, a brother in the body of Christ, a good friend from whom I'm separated by 500 years of misunderstanding. Yeah. Well, so you think? Yeah. After 500 years, I hope we can move beyond that. <laughs> Your question. No, you, the yeah, I hope so too. Uh, the, the word misunderstanding. Some people would see it as a something bigger than a misunderstanding. Why did you choose the word misunderstanding to describe the, the differences? Well, because that's you know, most Christians through the years have been sincere, and um, you know, and and we we've, we've been separated from each other, and, and more and more we are beginning to realize how much of it is about a misunderstanding. So, you know, if I want to get theological, for instance, uh, for years, you know, we thought we were different in terms of faith and works, mm-hmm. that Catholics emphasized works and Protestants emphasized faith and so on. And we found it was just we were using the language differently. We were using the way James writes it in the Epistle of James, and they were using it the way Paul. And, and mm-hmm. James and Paul weren't at odds with each other. But if you read the letter to the Romans and you read the Yep. Uh, you know, the Epistle of James, it sounds like they're contradicting each other. They're not, you know. Hmm. Uh, see, because uh, Paul says, you're not saved by works, you're saved by faith. And James says, you're saved by, by works. But when Paul says, you're not saved by works, he's talking about works of the law. That, you know, um, a little, little bit the way Richard Rohr puts it. Richard Rohr says, there isn't a, a single thing you can do to make God love you more. And also not a single thing you can do to make God love you less. Yeah. You know. So, yep. so in that sense, it's not that we can do works that please God and we get to heaven because we do good works, you know. Yeah. Actually, we should do good works because God loves us, not to make him love us, you know. But, and, uh, but it's kind of fitting that you see tension or different language even in our sacred texts of, of the Bible. So, of course, you're going to find that in our churches as we're going to also sometimes be talking right past each other. And so... Yeah, it makes right. sense, and that's that's misunderstanding, Luke. That's what misunderstanding. Yep. We're talking past each other, you know. Yeah, you also say that we with, with a fear, with truth on both sides, you know. Yeah, but but there's but there's a truth that we that we all share, and and you talk about how we focus yeah. too much on differences, when at the center we share the same essentially the same faith. What do you think makes yeah, people? You know, fo- it, it, sorry, no, I was going to say, what, what do you think makes people focus on? the differences instead of the essential commonalities that we have? Well, you know, that, 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 that's a good question, but it's also not, it's only not true only in religion. Notice that's what's happening in our country. You know, like right now, almost both sides are exclusively focused on our differences. Uh, you know, the, the differences are, are what bite. Mm-hmm. But if you take like Christianity, I, I, I believe 85 to 90% of uh, 
we agree on, and we're, we're different at about 10%, and we spent 500 years fighting about the 10%. Yeah. And then even realizing there that a lot of it was based on a misunderstanding, you know, um, not just in faith and works, but the Eucharist and real presence and all kinds of things and so on. Yeah. That, um, um, and, you know, it, 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 there's a long history, um, and, and, and history isn't easily undone, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, See, when, when the Reformation happened, it wasn't just religious. There was, it was also political, and you, know, you, had, you had religious wars for a hundred years. Uh, that's going to focus you on your differences. Yeah. 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 Uh, but it's true. Look, you know, it's true all over. Look at our country right now. We're just, the news at night, everything's about our differences. No. Not about what, you know, and, and yet we have so much commonality. I agree. You know? I agree. And I would love to, to see the church be a voice of reason and unity in a divided country where a church could be a place that people who are left and right politically can can share Eucharist together and that that would be the most unified time. It, it doesn't always happen, but I would sure love to see that taking place a little bit more. Yeah. Um, one of the things I, th- I think that we miss is that Catholics, Protestants, I, I think each of us have strengths that we bring to the table. And when we focus on our differences, we lose the ability to learn and to hear the voice of God in each other. And one of the things that I've heard the voice of God through your work, for me, is the way that you've been able to articulate spirituality and uh, the language of the soul, which in some ways I didn't have even the vocabulary to to grapple with. And so I feel like that, when I first read, um, oh... Holy Longing was the book we talked about a couple of years ago. Um, what is the book that, um, that's been out 15 years probably? Um, oh, I yeah. just forgot to talk. Holy Longing and Sacred Fire was the one that followed that. Okay, yeah. The Holy Longing was the one that's been out for a while. Sacred Fire came yeah, out four yeah. years ago, right? Yeah. yeah. When I first read Holy Longing, it, it was as if like, the seas parted and all of a sudden I was able to walk on dry, dry ground for the first time. And so, you know, your language of the soul, I didn't have any of that. You define soul as like the fire and the glue, like it gets us up and yeah. then, and it keeps us together. Mm-hmm. What do you think about, what do you think, I don't, know, I don't want to say that Catholics have the ability to use more of the creative language than the Protestants do, but do you feel like there's something that enables you to be able to communicate that so, so skillfully? Well, you know, the question, you know, the question of language, it's interesting. You know, I teach courses here on that and so on. I was helped a lot by Henry Nouwen, you know, the yeah. famous spiritual writer. Of course. It's interesting. You know, we look at, at Henry Nouwen, he did for, for a whole generation, he developed a genre, you know. Um, mm-hmm. well, I'll give you an example. You know, there's, there's a, a folk singer in Canada, a religious folk singer called Stephen Bell. And Stephen Bell tells his story. He said he grew up, he was the son of a Baptist minister, and he said, and he was a very talented musician, he said, and I didn't want to do Christian, he said, I want to do something religious. I didn't want to do Christian rock. He said, that's not me. And I, and I wasn't zoned for church music. And he said, I, I didn't know what to do. He said, and one day I heard John Michael Talbot sing, and I thought, that's it. That's it. I could do that. And he's done very well. The same, you know, before Henry Nouwen, we had, there was a religious writing which has its own power. So, you know, in the... In the Protestant evangelical tradition, you have people like Billy Graham. Mm-hmm. You know, or in classic, we have the imitation of Christ and so on. Catholics had Fulton Sheen. And that's a good language, but it's a different language. It's, um, it's, it's a biblical language. It's a church language. It has its own power. Um, 
But but you know, Henry now tried to say, Let, let's try to try to lang- language of soul. Let's try to uh, yeah. and with Jesus, you know, and so he helped us develop a language. And um, for instance, he himself would rewrite his books five or six times over to try to get them simpler, you know, which is also, you know, mm. if you look at some of my earlier writings, they're much more complex. I'd use a lot more psychological words and technical words, and the longer I've written, the more I realize, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot for simplicity all the time and kind of simplicity of soul, just, you know, everybody knows mm-hmm. what fire means, and everyone knows what glue means, you know? Yeah. If you start talking about principles of contingency and so on, uh, you're <laughs> in a different part, you know? And, and you're able to... Uh, so I see that in your writing, that you've done that, and I, I can see how Henry Nouwen was on the vanguard of that. In a lot of ways... Henry Nouwen is um, is like the gateway drug to the to the Catholic writers for some of us Protestants. Like we can, yeah. for some reason, Nouwen was was one of the first ones for me personally that I read and going, wait a minute, Protestants aren't the only ones who've been doing this and aren't the only ones who have something to say. And w- what I found was that simple language that was n- not simple in its content, but simple in its its accessibility. And yeah. like like it, it has to be simple without being simplistic. Which yeah. is what, what scriptures, you know, Jesus' parables are the simplest thing in the world, but you, you, you write libraries of books off of them. They're not mm-hmm. simplistic. You know, uh, Mary had a little lamb is simply, it's also simplistic. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Jesus' parables about, you know, just the other day, you know, what Jesus says, you know, like uh, the gospel was, you know, the king was having like a mustard seed and so on. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's a very simple parable, but you can spend the rest of your life meditating on it. You yeah. Know? Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, the, the prodigal son story is a simple story. A dad loves his son and r- runs after him, but it's yeah, yeah. it's it's quite complex. But the language that, that you you've been giving me is this language of, of spirituality. And so I I grew up, you know, you need Jesus. If you, if you die tonight, Jesus saves you from going to hell and spending eternity there. But what I didn't have, and so that's what I started with. But what I think some of the, these other voices have helped me with is this understanding of. There is this, to use your language, this holy longing. There is, you, you, you quote a poet, uh, Annie Sexton, who talked about this yeah. gnawing, pestilent rat, where there's, there, there's something inside of you that, that's scratching and clawing for something more transcendent than what we have. Yeah. But not all of us have the ability to, to have words to express that. Well, what? But we all, it's, it's almost like this common language, this, this common experience that we need language to all be able to communicate with each other this, this, this shared experience. Yeah. Well, you know, look, look but like I said at the beginning, see, we, I grew up to, you know, see, we have a, a Christian language. Mm-hmm. That, that it's the language of, of iconography, and it's really powerful. It's poetic. So you say, you know, um, Jesus is the Lamb of God in whose blood I'm washed clean. You know, that's just mm-hmm. the deep, deep, central truth. But, you know, it. That needs to be unpackaged. Like, first of all, Jesus wasn't a sheep, you know? So, okay, <laughs> already you know you're dealing with metaphor, you know? But yeah. see, that, that's like, like a, a meditation icon that you stare at, which we get because we're risking our lives on it. I always say, you know, like, the fact that Jesus died for my sins and is universal Savior, I'm risking my life on that. There isn't a theologian in the world who can explain that adequately. It's a powerful uh-huh. mystery. You know, and see, so there is a struggle with language. Like, how do you, what does that mean? How do you explain that? And so on, realizing you'll never really fully explain it. But, you know, to, to try different languages of soul and so on, to, um, to say, what does it mean that Jesus died for our sins? What does it mean yeah. that Jesus is the Son of God? You know, 
what what does that we're washed clean in his blood what what is blood and how you know yeah i think that there's a rich meditation forever that has to take place on that you know which when yeah. we struggle with language you know um and so we we have the biblical language and that's our foundational language that's uh um, I call it our, our, our iconic language that mm-hmm. is the truth. Um, and I, I have made this distinction. It's a truth we get, but don't fully ever explain, you know. So yeah. I, I, can, I can hear Jesus die since I get it. I can't really explain it, you know. Um, it, it seems because faith is deeper than our understanding, which I try yeah. to also say in this book. Yeah, I... One of the lines you have in the book is that inside us there is something the mystics call dark knowledge, namely an inchoate, intuitive gut sense within which we know and understand beyond what we can picture and give words to. Uh, You also reference a poet, uh, Robert Lax, who says, "Uh, the task in life is not so much finding a path in the woods as of finding a rhythm to walk in. It's like there's this rhythm. I love that that line, you know. the, the path is actually laid out for us. We just have to mm-hmm. find our own rhythm to walk in that path. You know? yep. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Okay, okay, so you talk about, um, in your life, you were born with two loves. Uh, yeah. Love of the pagan world and the lo- love of religion. Yeah. Uh, as a priest, how, how long did it take you to be able to, to verbalize that? Because some people would think as a priest, you can't say that you have a love for the pagan world and the things, the pleasures of the five senses. Do you feel like that's a, something that people aren't really giving you room to say often? Well, you know, it, it, <laughs> you know when, when, when in the book, and the way you just said it, it can be jarring to a Christian to say, well, I was born with an incurable love for the pagan world. I was born with <laughs> an incurable love of God and so on. But, but they're, they're both important. You know, like, yeah. you know, it says in Scripture... Now, okay, but well, first I want to answer your question. See, how long did it take me to realize that? Well, you know, it took me um, half of a lifetime to, 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 uh, to integrate it. I mean, I'm still trying to integrate that, but half mm-hmm. of my life even to articulate that, you know? So, you know, because when you grow up as Christian, I think in many of our churches, we haven't got the permission to say that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you, you know, but eventually you realize we have to say it, because remember Scripture says so clearly God is the author of all that is good, which means everything good in this world comes from God. And, you know, and it, it, we, we, we can call it pagan or call it secular, we call it humanistic and so on. That doesn't erase it. You know, like um, um, Scripture is very clear. Everything that's good, there's one author of all that's good in this world, and that's God. So, um, and, and, and notice how, and I say that in the book, how we, we, we are drawn so strongly to the things of the world and the things of the senses, um, because that, you know, that's the way God built us. Because we, we are meant, we, we're not disembodied angels living in a in, in mm-hmm. a spiritual world. We're Teilhard de Chardin used to say that we're not um, spiritual but, but human beings trying to be spiritual. We're spiritual beings trying to be human. You know. Yeah. We are spiritual beings from our birth, as I say in the holy longing and so on. The deepest thing inside of us is our soul and the image and likeness of God. But God put us here. God is a good parent. Do you have kids? I've got three daughters. Yeah. See, as a parent, 
you didn't bring your children into the world as, as a test to see what acid and go to heaven. You want them to flourish. You want them to be happy in this life, you know, yeah. so that um, God puts us in this world, not just as a test to see, can we have faith? Can we be faithful? Can we go to heaven? Um, God is a good parent. God wants us to flourish. And so the, the good things of creation, now again, you know the word uh, discipleship, we, we, we sometimes forget that word comes from the word discipline. The yeah. disciple puts themselves under a discipline. So Christianity is a powerful discipline. It's just you have all these natural cravings and so on, and they're good, and the world's good, but it's got to be disciplined. It's going to be... Uh, I wrote a book some years ago I called Against an Infinite Horizon. And I said, you know, the, it, it's, it's not that God and the world oppose each other, so you don't you don't love God and alongside you love the world alongside of God. No, you, you, God is the, is the you love the world against atheism. See what atheism does? It has no horizon, so the world becomes it. It stops there. Mm-hmm. As Christians, we we don't reject the world, but you always see it against the infinity of God. You see, it's good, but you know it's 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 a much bigger picture we're always looking at. You know, see, so yep. you don't. Say that you have to choose. Do I love work? Do I love the world or do I love God? Well, you're supposed to love both, you know. Mm-hmm. But if you love the world without an infant horizon, then it becomes idolatrous. That's what idolatry is. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, you know, see, so you, you we, we are meant to have strong pagan loves, but against this infinite horizon of God, you know, mm-hmm. and, and um, because the pagan world is also God's world, God made it. Uh, it's not in opposition to him. Um, it can be neutral to him and so on. But, but, um, but our task as Christians, I think, I think that's a big thing we have to overcome in spirituality, is to somehow, um, that we always see the world as, as, you know, as an opposition to religion. You know? Whereas, in fact, the function of religion, as Jesus says, is to save the world. Remember what Jesus says, my flesh is food for the life of the world. Not necessarily even for the life of Christians. No. But Jesus came as a Christian church and churches. We are instruments to help God save the world. You know, not just ourselves. And so, yeah, uh, yeah that's, I think that's one of the things we have to stretch ourselves on. I, I yeah, I agree. And I think that we typically like to say, you know, that there's just God and there's the world, and things of the world are the enemy, and things of God are, are different. Yeah. But I think the spirituality that you're talking about is like this embodied spirituality that sees the goodness in creation. Uh, there's a line in the book in which you say, um, in every one of those explicit desires, there is present implicitly beneath the desire and as the deepest part of that desire, the longing for and pursuit of something more profound. Ultimately, we are longing for the depth that grounds every person and object, God. So the, yep. even in the longing for the quote-unquote pagan world, there is a longing for the creator of that pagan world, which is God. And yeah. it's all pointing so, back. There, go ahead. Since I was 19 years old and began to study philosophy and so on, the, the, the dominant line that underlies all of my writing and, and my faith is from St. Augustine, who just says, you know, he begins his famous book, The Confessions, with the line, you've made ourselves from yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So, you know, we're restless for a lot of things, but ultimately... It's all in relationship to, you know, um, to God. You know, the, the heart is made for God, and, and you know, um, we want everything else in between, but God, God is the end game. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and in every longing, you know, uh, 
So, you know, the, the example I'm using to my other writers because it's graphic, you know, so somebody used to think, I'm just, I'm longing for sex. Sex is what I want. And sex mm-hmm. is what the person wants, but ultimately in function of family, for community, for God, for, you know, uh, everything is, like I always say, against that infinite horizon, you know. And that single line from Augustine is kind of the hermeneutic for all my work, you know. Mm-hmm. Like the holy longing. You know, the holy longing is just, even the expression is Augustine. Your longing is holy, because your longing is ultimately for God. Yeah. I'm actually ripping this part of your book off in my sermon on Sunday. The part that you talk about with Jephthah's daughter, and you talk yeah. about how this woman, terrible story, and it's uh, disturbing to us, rightly so, and Jesus would make us completely have a different perspective, on, or would cause us to be disturbed by the story. But... She, uh, her, her father makes a vow. He's going to sacrifice first and then greets him on his way home from battle. He wins the battle, comes home. It's his daughter. He has to sacrifice. He, he believes he needs to sacrifice his daughter. And she says, do with me as, as you must, but let me go into the wilderness and mourn my virginity. And you have this great bit about how every one of us has that same experience where these longings that we have for this world, which ultimately should point us to God, um, they never really fully get realized right here. And so we all have to mourn our own loss. And e- even, you have this great line that um, even if you're married, every one of us to some degree goes to bed alone. Like the, yeah. There's always this longing for the world that will never be realized in what we have. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah the two things about that text, which has always been, <laughs> first of all, like I said, it, on the surface, that sounds like a pretty terrible text. And, uh, you know, I always, some of the Old Testament texts, they should have disclaimers. Like, yeah. they see a movie, and they say, no real horses died making this film. <laughs> with, yeah. with the Old Testament, some say, let's say, no real people died in this story, you know? These are stories of soul, you know? Uh, and, um, you know, and, and, and also, you know, I, don't, I once had Raymond Brown, the famous scripture scholar as a professor. He's a wonderful man, wonderful scholar, but he always said, for preachers, he said, those kinds of texts that if you don't explain them, don't read them in church. They're just going to upset people, you know. Hmm. He said, these texts can be explained, you know. Um, but see, what I say in there, I give you, I'm not sure if I quote that there, but I'm, it's elsewhere in the book, but I want to give you a great quote from Carl Rahner. Carl Rahner once said, he says, yes. in the torment of the insufficiency of everything you can attain, you ultimately learn that here in life there is a symphony. Nobody, like I said, everybody dies, partly the virgin. But mm-hmm. see, there, there's no full consummation in life, no matter how full your life is, you know? And, um, and see, that's what that story is, is illustrating. And so it's very important, the point I'm making is that we, we get in touch with that and that we, we grieve our inadequacies, our, our uh, inconsummations. Otherwise, oftentimes, we turn bitter and we're yeah. blaming somebody or you're putting pressure on somebody. So, for instance, as a married person, um, you can love your wife, and you can meet the most beautiful, wonderful woman in the world, but she can't be God to you, you know? She can't fulfill all of your desires, and if you put that on her, you're doing violence to her, you know? Or if, or if somebody tries to make you kind of, you have to make me happy, um, you can't do that fully. Only God can. And see, uh, and then we also, like, some of us, we're hard on each other because... In marriages or wherever, we're kind of, you know, this whole thing, you live happy ever after. Uh, you know, you live happy ever after sometime in the kingdom. But right now, there's always that inadequacy. 
and and like this text that it has to be mourned, it has to be grieved. Because um, when we grieve something, grieving takes away the hardness, it takes away the bitterness. Tears are soft, anger is hard. Yeah, yeah. You you talk about fear, anger, and sadness. That fear, unlike anger and sadness, is the only one that has no release valves. Yeah. And so we can we can shed our tears and we can go punch a wall or you know, kick something and get rid of our anger if that's how you're going to do it. But fear is one you just have to just hold on to. What do yeah. you think? Why is, why is fear that way? Why can't we just get rid of it? Because, <laughs> because when we try, it doesn't work. <laughs> no, uh, no it's, it, it, I remember reading that in, 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 a, in a Dutch theology book. When I was on the, the, the guy says, uh, and, and, and written by a woman who, who was dying of uh, Lou Gehrig's disease and so on. She mm. says, like, uh, there's an answer to everything except fear. And in and, and that sense, fear has to be lived through. Um, as does a lot of, you know, there's a great line in the Book of Lamentations that, you know, sometimes as a, as, as a preacher, I used it at a funeral or just with people when I send them a card, something terrible happens. And the Book of Lamentations says, Sometimes all you can do is put your mouth to the dust and wait. You know, uh, uh, you know, it, 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 you're looking for an answer. You know, in our, we always believe there's an answer. Something, somebody can lift this pain, or somebody can lift it. And sometimes it can't be. It, it'll lift. Fear, lifts, anger, bitterness, so on. And, you know, uh, um, or, or just the heaviness of the death. You lose a loved one, and so on. Um, there's nothing you can do at the time to, to lift that, that, that kind of sadness and so on. Uh, but it'll lift. It, it has to be lived through. You have to come to the other side with that. And sometimes it can take a long time. I remember a woman whose husband just out of the blue killed himself. Um, and she was, first of all, she was really angry, but she was really in a dark space for a couple of years. And she used to say to me, I'm a Christian, but this will never get better. I'll always feel like that. I said, no, no, the sun will shine sometime, but not yet. And we took her seven years. Today she's happily remarried, and, uh, and the sun comes back out. But during those years, she just had to endure it um, and to have to have friends and other people to help her. Just, um, and fear is like that. Fear, fear there's, there's no, uh, no, no answer. You know, and we can, we can falsely bolster our courage you know, where I say, I'm not afraid of the dark, I'm not afraid of the dark, I'm not afraid of the dark. Yeah. It doesn't take the fear away, you know. Yeah. It, it seems like fear, it, it's just there. Um, yeah. yeah. And you don't get the answer you want. And with, uh, with the love of the world, you don't get the answer that you want. In some ways, yeah. uh, the symphony is not going to be complete for all of us. And you one of the things that's... Taste, add something we don't yeah. get the answer we want, but we get the answer we need yeah. with prayer. We don't yep. always get what we want. God gives us what we need. And, mm-hmm. and, and oftentimes it takes a couple of years for us to, to get that after the fact. You know, I'm glad I didn't get what I wanted, but I got what I needed. You know? hmm. How do you think people are able to make that turn? Because often we can't differentiate what we want from what we need. I think it only happens in retrospect. I think it's, you know, uh, uh, there's an interesting kind of image in when God talks to Moses, and Moses asks God to see his face. Let me see your face. And God says, no, you can't see my face. 
and said, nobody can see my face and live. And then he tells Moses, but he said, I'm going to put you in a cleft by the rock, and I'm going to put my hand over your face, and I'm going to walk past, and I'll take my hand away, and you'll see my back. And so there's been lots of speculation. What does it mean to see God's back? And Rabbi Tishel, the great Jewish commentator, I love what he said on that. He said, see, we see God in our lives, in, 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 in our past. So if you look back in your life, you will see the finger of God in your life, if you have faith. Mm-hmm. A lot of times you won't see it in the present moment. A lot of times the present moment is too much full of confusion and turmoil and all misunderstanding and so on. Three or four or five years later, you see the wisdom of what happened. You know, you see God's back. See, we see divine providence. We see God's finger in our lives much more clearly by looking backwards than in the present moment. A lot of times you're sorting stuff out. And, uh, and see, later on, you're going to see, this is what I needed. Not what I wanted, but this is what I needed. You know? Mm. And so when, uh, when Jesus says, our prayers are going to be answered, <laughs> this knows it. Mm. Not just according to our dictates here, you know. Um, God will give us what we need, not always what we want. Yeah. Because, and even there, because, it, it, because it's not what we want at a superficial level, at a much deeper level, a level where we don't understand ourselves, actually that's what we do want. You know? So our needs at a much deeper level are our true wants. You know, but more superficially on the surface, we want pleasure and this and that, and you don't want any tension, you want comfort, you want pain to go away, and so on. Um, you don't want confusion or mess. Um, deeper down, that's not your real want. Deeper down, you want you know, the depth and the meaning that God has, you know, ordained for you. Yeah. And that's not maybe always what you want. It's, it's what you need. Uh, you have this quote from Jürgen Moltmann, who says that our faith begins at the point where atheists suppose that it must be at an end. And yeah. about that, you go and say, you know, real faith begins at the exact point where our atheist critics think it ends in darkness and emptiness in religious impotence and our powerlessness to influence how God flows into us. That's not the faith that many of us want. We, what we want is not what we get, but what we, what we get is faith where atheists say, this is probably where it's supposed to stop. Um, th- it seems like you're, yeah, you're yeah, no, I was going to say, it seems like you're downshifting pretty hard from what we want, but I think that is the reality for, for most of us, is that's where real faith does begin, though. Yeah, yeah, because, and, and it's illustrated so clearly with Jesus. See, on the cross, and that's what Moltmann said, the, on the cross it looks like we've killed God, we've killed faith, everything's darkness, evil has triumphed, godlessness has triumphed. That's the beginning of our Christian faith, you know, um, mm-hmm. um, it, it, you know, because, see, you know, you know what's killed on the cross is precisely the God of imagination, not the real God. You know? mm-hmm. see, and, and, and when we're young, we need the imaginative God, and that's what dark nights and soul mean. The older we get, the more we get to a point where, you know, the way we set it up and the way we imagine God and the way religion should work and so on, you know, according to our very human things, doesn't work. And that can be kind of, you can almost feel that like an atheism. You can say, well, James, wrong. You know, God doesn't, you know, you can look at the world and say, God isn't a lord of this world and so on. God is. But, you know, not according to our imagined, the way we imagine it. See, so real faith begins where fairy tales end and where our imagination runs itself aground. 
because you know the first truth all Christians agree about about God is that God is ineffable, which means you can know God, but you can't think God. And uh, sometimes when I say that, people say, why not? I say, we'll test. Think about the highest number it's possible to count to and tell me when you get there, and you can't get there. <laughs> See, God is infinite. There's no ceiling, mm-hmm. and not only that, there's no beginning. So you, you can't circumscribe God in a thought, because if you can't get to the beginning, you can't get to the end. Mm-hmm. Thoughts have to circumscribe something. See, God is... God is knowable. We know God deeply, but we can't imagine God, we can't think God, we can't d- describe God, and so on, um, other than with, you know, the terms we get from Scripture, you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, well, God is love, and God is faithful, and so on. Uh, and we only know that because Jesus taught that to us. You know, it's... A, um, but see, otherwise God would be unknowable. That's what Christians, we call it revelation. You know, like, um, we know God because God has been revealed to us. Otherwise, we wouldn't even know God. I mean, we'd know God in a, like I said, that dark, inchoate way. You have this sense that, uh, you know, faith is certain trust in you. Uh, I read a marvelous book, and I think I quoted it there last year by this uh, Annie Riggs, who's atheist. She's dying. She's under cancer treatment, and this, this nurse says, just, honey, you've got to have faith, you've got to have faith. And she said, it bothered me. But then I thought, no, I just trust it's going to be okay. I just trust that somehow, see, that is faith. You mm. know, she couldn't put the word God for it, but just kind of, she trusted, I'm going to die and it's going to be okay. It's just, something's going to take care of me. Now, she couldn't name the something, but uh, see, that, that's faith. She couldn't imagine it, but she knew it. Yeah. And that's the struggle of having faith in a God who, like as you say, God is ineffable. And you say that when we do try to, describe who God is. In the book, you say it, it causes uh, God to become a superhero or a dry picture. Yeah. The superhero is like that idealized version of ourself or a dry picture of, like, it, it just doesn't do enough work. Why does that seem to be like the only two options that we, or why does that seem like the, the two main ways that we go when we're trying to describe who God is? Well, look, look it, because it's the only place we can go. See, if you're trying to describe, like, what, what, would, what should the God look like? What do you have to take you qualities and kind of put the word super to him. You know, so yeah. he's got to be a superman, he's got to be super virtuous, he's got to be super, but still, we're still thinking humanly, you know. And then we, um, you know, I used to have a philosophy, a theology professor who was kind of cynical, but he's very bright, and he always, he always used to say, God made us in God's image and likeness, and we've never ceased returning to favor. <laughs> yeah. And then we're, we're creating God in our image and likeness, you know, which is an idol. Um, you know, uh, we can take all of our best qualities, we know they're somehow in God, or we wouldn't have them, but you can't get a picture of God like that, you know? Um, we just can't. You always get a superman, um, and it's like, usually it's a man. We don't have a superwoman, you know? <laughs> so, so, but we, we somehow end up with a superman, um, and, um, but it's not God. It, and then, not only that, our, 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 our vision of super stuff is so much formed by Hollywood and superheroes, and pretty mm-hmm. soon you have, you know, Bruce Willis and Sylvester Stallone and John Wayne, a few people, you know, come and shoot bad guys yeah. as your image of God, you know, um, uh, which incidentally is quite the opposite of the image of Jesus. Remember when he's on the cross and they're saying, if you're the son of God, come off the cross, show some power. Hollywood would have God mock the cross, and he'd have, he'd have kicked a lot of people under yeah. the cross. You know, yeah. 
the father the father let him die. Um, God works. You notice God, Jesus wasn't born as a superhero. He was born as a baby in the straw who couldn't talk and feed himself. Um, mm-hmm. That's God's power in the world oftentimes. I always tell my students, don't be disappointed with faith. Because I said, God, as you'll meet God in this world, is often thoroughly underwhelming. We'll see. Our, our superheroes are overwhelming. Just look at the Christmas story. You know, they're waiting for this Messiah, and they get a baby who's helpless. It's underwhelming, uh, yeah. Babies have great power, but not earthly power, you know? Yeah. Um, people watch their language around the baby, and the baby can't even hear. It's <laughs> You know, so true. Exorcisms in a room. Yeah. Yeah. So, so baby, like God, in some ways, underwhelming in that we want God to be the superhero. What God is yeah. is a baby yeah. in a manger. It's uh, a poor Jewish man crucified on a cross. And so, there's a struggle of this is the God that's realized. This is the God that that's there. This is not the God of my expectations. And so, we have to wrestle with this. And, and you talk about in the book that. In the normal scheme of things, the first half of life, we're struggling with the sensuality, the greed, sexuality uh, of the, dare we call it, the pagan world. But the second half of life, we struggle with anger and forgiveness. And the anger is often, and I'm using your words, unconsciously focused on God. In the end, our real struggle isn't with regret, it's with God. Some of us can't conceptualize how we have anger or frustrations with God in the second half of life. Help us connect the dots on that. Okay, well, I'll, I'll tell you what. I, 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 do, I, I do it by, by pointing to a story. Scripture. Okay. You know, the famous story of the prodigal son and the older brother and the prodigal father. You know, we've always called it the parable of the prodigal son. Scholars mm-hmm. say, no, no. There's three people in there, and they're all equally important. It's the prodigal son, it's the older brother, and it's the prodigal father. Yep. But notice in this story, you know, it almost tells us the first half of like the prodigal son. What's he struggling with, you know? restlessness and sex and pleasure and so on and drugs and whatever. Okay. What the older brother's struggling with, notice he's home, he's doing all the work, but he can't go into the house. The house means the father's house. Mm-hmm. He's outside because of anger, and the anger is precisely about, you know, uh, the younger guy and all the parties about him and I'm doing all the work and so on. See, that is really a, a struggle, not just for Christians, for good moral people as they get older, um, uh, there's this whole struggle to 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 forgive and let go. The it's I, I biblically symbolized. This is the, the the anger of the older brother, the prodigal son. It's also resentment of Martha. You know, when Martha says to, to Jesus, "I'm doing all the work. She's not doing anything," and so on. The, uh, yeah. And it, it there's lots of good psychological literature, like Alice Miller's book, the, the drama of the gift of child, the gift of child comes to the sensitive person who gets angry when they get older. But you just see it in old people. I hear it in older people's confessions. I struggle with it myself, you know. When, when you get older, you, you get a sense of where life precisely hasn't been fair. I always tell people humorously, you, you, get, you realize that your mother did love your sister better than you, <laughs> which, yeah. which you didn't want to admit earlier, you know, and see mm-hmm. the first come out. And, and we end up, and you see it so often, this is a real struggle for us as Christians, not to be judgmental, not to be bitter, not to be angry, you know? Like, for instance, the Roman Catholic Church right now, we have a lot of people really angry at Pope Francis because he's 
preaching mercy, and he well, people should go to communion, you know, and they say, well, they're not worthy to go to communion, and I'm worthy to go to communion. That's the older brother of the prodigal son, you know. These are good, sincere people, worrying that somehow we're going to give God's grace away cheaply, that, that you, know, we, you know, I've earned, but he hasn't, and so on. Um, you know, your figure there, Luke, is the older brother of the prodigal son. And notice mm-hmm. the story ends. The story doesn't end with the celebration of the young guy. It ends with the father pleading the older brother to come to the house. And incidentally, there's quite a word there. When, when he comes out and he says, son, you know, that, that is the, the way that he says, uh, you know, why aren't you here? That's the word when you read in Scripture, you know, when the, the 12-year-old Jesus gets lost in the temple and, and Joseph and Mary find him, that's the word that Mary said to her son. She's been anxious. Son, we've been anxious about you, you know. And that's the exact phrase that the father of the prodigal son says to the older brother. He says, son, you know, like, I'm worried about you. You know, like, I want you to come into the house. I want you to celebrate. You know, come back with the family. And notice he's outside of the house, not by moral indiscretion. He's out of the house by anger. Um, hmm. Some of his anger is at moral indiscretion. You know, he's angry that he's doing all this work and he's keeping a moral life and it seems nobody else's, you know, uh, that's a struggle. Yeah. You say in the book that just as smoke follows fire, forgiveness follows gratitude. Gratitude ultimately undergirds and fuels all genuine virtue. It, it seems like sometimes we would have to forgive and then finally after I forgive you, then I can become grateful. Why do you think it's gratitude as the foundation? Why does that come first and then forgiveness come second? No, because a lot of times when we try to forgive and it doesn't come out of gratitude, we put conditions to it. It's kind of, I forgive, but I don't forget. Well, now that means you haven't forgiven. <laughs> you know, or we, we somehow forgive out of guilt or something else, and then it's still inside of us. Okay. It's only when our hearts are full of joy, so on, something we can say, I forgive you, you know, uh, I can let this go because there's something greater inside of me, love is inside of me, if I let it go because of a moral dictate or because I'm scared to go to hell or whatever, I'm still not letting it go, you know, I'm, I'm just pushing it to the side, you know, that we can only really let hurt go when we feel love and we feel, we feel warmth, we feel grace, we feel uh, you know, those are all words the same way. Gratitude is grace. Um, hmm. And when we say, even the old expression, to err is human, to forgive is divine, it's, it's you know, we, we need grace. We just can't do that. It's, it's, you know, people who get that, the clearest, are people in, in, in 12-step programs, you know, uh, mm-hmm. where they know. Remember when, when, when Peter, Jesus says, it's, it's, impo- it's hard for a rich man to go to heaven, camel, go through the eye of a needle, and Peter said, if that's the case, it's impossible. And Jesus said, it is for humans, but not for God. See, so that there's things we can't do on our own, and forgiveness is one of them. You know, it, it, we somehow have to be warm from the inside, by community, by grace, and so on. And we can let it go when there's something warmer inside of us that's replaced it. Ah, hmm. oh, that's good. That's good. Well, I really enjoyed this book. Uh, titles Wrestling with God. And I uh, appreciate you taking the time uh, to come on the podcast and talk about it again. So thank you so much, sir. Luke, thanks, thanks for having me. And I'm, 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 I'm thrilled that this book is reaching into, uh, you know, hands like yours and into pulpits and churches like yours. 
Well, uh, the honor is mine, and I'll do my part in helping to undo the 500 years of misunderstanding between our denominations. Yeah, and please rip off all of it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, in that case, I will be doing that uh, very well. So, much thanks. Thanks, Luke. I appreciate this. Thanks, sir. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.